Oh God, Amen and Amen. And yet here we are, Father. Much in worship. If only you would leave that door ajar just a little longer. We need, we need the vision of the Lamb. Amen. Although I must admit for the life of me, I can't figure out why a king would choose as a symbol of his reign a wimpy little lamb. I mean, I can understand a nation in its fledgling genesis. I can understand a nation going to all the creatures of nature and wanting to somehow portray its, its uh, majestic, unfettered power and liberty. I can understand a nation choosing an eagle, a bald eagle, to, to represent itself as the United States has done. And I, can, I think I can get my mind around a massive federation of states saying, look, we've got to typify our fearless courage, our ferocious strength. And I can understand why Russia would say, look, let's, let's choose the bear, the big, roaring bear. I can even understand if, if, if once upon a time it was a global empire. An empire, by the way, of which it was said, the sun never sets upon it every time zone it filled once upon a time. I can understand why the... The great people of England would choose the, the, the uh, roaring king of the forest as their symbol. Now, I've been to England, as many of you have, and I've seen there in Trafalgar Square, I've seen it in front of the palaces, those massive carved lions. I mean, I could understand. I could understand. I have a little harder time understanding how a political party could choose an elephant to be its symbol, but I, I can understand. I suppose I can understand why the other party would choose, what is it, a donkey? <laughs> Which, if you're looking at political cartoons these days, is appearing rather bruised, bloodied, and bandaged after the midterm elections recently. But why would a king, to symbolize his reign, why would a king choose a wimpy little lamb? I mean, we, we heard it just a moment ago, dramatically read to us from the Apocalypse. Worthy is the Lamb upon the throne to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. A sevenfold cheer to the Lamb on the throne. I mean, when you and I think of Lamb, what do we think of? Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It followed her to school one day, which was against the rules. It made the children laugh and play to see a lamb in school. But it isn't a lamb in school that we see today. It's a lamb on the throne. What is the deal with this? 
Why would a king choose wimpy little lamb? What? Why would you do it? And we sang it just a moment ago with all the gusto in our souls. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Why would you do it? Open your Bible, please. Once again, to the majestic, the mighty, the mysterious last book of the Bible called the Apocalypse. It's the book that is the grist for our worship all this university year so far. Open to the book of Revelation, please. Our series entitled The Revealing. We're looking for the faces of Jesus, the revealing. Although last week, lo and behold, instead of the face of Jesus, we saw the other face upon the throne. And if you're here next week, instead of the face of Jesus, we're going to see, count them, seven faces on the throne. But that's next week, today, the revealing part eight. You say, hey, wait a minute, Dwight, I, I missed part five or I missed part three. I have good news for you. If you will go to our website, www.pmchurch.org, all the parts will be there in this Bible teaching series called The Revealing. Now today, the face of the slaughtered lamb. All right, open your Bible, please, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version again today. Revelation chapter 5. There's a New King James Version in front of you. And those of you watching on television, we'll put the uh, New Revised Standard on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 5. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. We're not talking about a whimper here in the Greek. Megalephone. It's a megaphone voice. I heard this loud voice. I heard a mighty angel cry out. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep. Bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. What's going on here? Ladies and gentlemen, we are about... Hold on. Buckle into your seat. We are about to witness a coronation. A coronation I never knew took place before. I never knew it. But thanks to the scholarship of my friend Ranko Stefanovich in his brand new commentary on Revelation, which I read through this summer, now I realize that's what Revelation 5 is all about. Hold on to your seat. You, you have never seen this chapter this way before. And I have to share it with you. I've just got to share it. All right. Now, there, there's a scroll. You remember the scroll? There's a scroll in verse 1. In fact, let's read verse 1 again. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, you need to understand this is, this is a very special scroll. This is a coronation scroll. It's the scroll of the covenant of a new kingdom. And in fact, what is about to happen has happened hundreds of times in the history of Israel. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy. 
when the instructions were first given. All right, God says, you're going to have a new king someday. Here is what I want you and your new king to do. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. When he, the new king, has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law, that would be the book of Deuteronomy, written for him. They wrote it right there in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall remain with him, this scroll, and he shall read in it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Diligently observing all the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment, either to the right, neither to the left, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. When you get a new king, you give him a new scroll. Do you understand? It has the law written all over it. We have a case in history. Take a look at this. This is in the uh, record of the king, 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 12. Then he, the high priest, brought out the king's son. This is, a, this is a boy king. And he put the crown on him and he gave him the covenant. There's the scroll. And they proclaimed him king and they anointed him and they clapped their hands and they shouted, Long live the king. What's going on here? I want to let, let Ronco tell you himself. Let's put uh, the words from his commentary on the screen. When in Old Testament times, the Israelite king took the throne, he received together with the royal crown, the scroll of the covenant, namely the book of Deuteronomy. The covenant scroll became a symbol of installation upon the throne. In taking it, the newly crowned king would sit on the throne and begin to reign. The possession of the scroll and the ability to open and read it demonstrated the king's right to rule and to deal with any crisis that might appear. At the same time, Ronco concludes, the possession of the covenant scroll signified, I like this, that the king of Israel was co-ruler with God, the great king, end quote. But ladies and gentlemen, that is precisely the problem and John knows it. I've, I've read, I don't know how many times I've read Revelation chapter 5 and I've never been able to figure out what is the problem? Oh man, dry your tears. What are you sitting here weeping for? Can't you see? God's on the throne. It ought to be okay. I have not understood why John is weeping. He is weeping because, see, right there in the throne beside God, the scroll has not been taken up. It has not been picked up. You say, wait a minute, what? I thought it said here, in verse 1, that the scroll was in God's right hand. Wrong. Dr. Stefanovich has done the research. That phrase is not used anywhere, anywhere else in the Bible. It's only found in extra-biblical uh, literature for the first seven centuries. And generally, almost always, when that phrase is used, it doesn't mean in the right hand. It means at the right hand. And you can see why at would be the correct translation here. John knows. And that's why he's weeping. John is weeping because the earth is in a mess. John is in prison. The church is being persecuted. The devil is having a heyday and we have no king. There is no co-ruler king on the throne with God. We are in big trouble. Nobody to pick up the scroll. It just lies there. We have no king. But hallelujah, there's more to the scene. Come on, John, hang in, hang in. Don't, don't give up now, John. Dry those tears. Verse 4, And I began to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You remember last week when we were in Revelation chapter 4, you remember the, the, the key word was throne? You remember that? Throne? Fourteen times in chapter 4. This is the new key word. In this throne sequence, we will come across this word five times. It's the new key word. I'm weeping 
In fact, read it again, verse 4. I, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. But the scene goes on, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Hey, dry those tears. Do not weep. See, that's a key word there. See, use your eyes, John. What are you crying for? Are you crying your eyes out? Use them instead. See. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Open your eyes, sir. Open your eyes. You are about to see the rightful king. Keep watching, John. Don't hit the pause button on that, on that uh, VCR. Let it keep rolling. Watch. And John can't believe his ears because the elder takes the two greatest images... Of a messianic king. He, the elder says, Lion of the tribe of Judah and David. And he puts them together. And John is so excited. He whirls around. This is the best of the best. And as he whirls around, John, his jaw must have dropped to his chest. His heart must have sunk into his stomach. Because, ooh, as he turns around, the most grotesque, the most grotesque scene stuns that elderly earth visitor to the throne room of heaven. Because what does he see? Verse 6. Then, so he whirls around, so he wants to see the lion and the king. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. The face of the slaughtered Lamb. Please note, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a little Mary had a little lamb, it's fleece as white as snow kind of lamb. This is not. This is a slaughtered lamb. In fact, John is so moved by this, this it, it is grotesque that 28 times John will keep inserting the picture of the slaughtered lamb in the apocalypse itself. 28 times. Have you ever seen a slaughtered lamb? Come on. Have you ever seen a slaughtered lamb? I haven't either. Have you ever seen a slaughtered cat by the side of the road? Yeah. Have you ever seen a slaughtered dog? Have you seen a slaughtered deer here in Michigan? We see them. Have you ever seen a, have you ever seen a slaughtered squirrel? Once upon a time, not too many years ago, I was taking both our kids to school, going here to Ruth Murdoch, and so I'm going down Ferry Street to, this, to the one stoplight in town, and I come to a public school crossing, and the, and the guardian, the crossing guardian, Puts the sign up and I dutifully slow my car down. And just as I'm slowing the car down, a fluffy little brown squirrel determined that this is the perfect time to dart across the street. And thump, thump, oh, I knew instantly what we, I knew instantly what I had done. And so I look in the rear view mirror and my, stu my stomach just goes... And Kirk, not one to ever miss a beat, he whirls around and he looks. And as, so, and, and as soon as he sees it, I'm hoping, don't say anything because Chrissy's here, but he blurts it out. And so now, I not only have a twisted stomach, I have a wailing daughter and a lecturing son in the same car. And I know I am the worst villain who ever moved across the face of this earth. And I feel awful. A slaughtered animal is awful, especially when you're the one who did it. 
I've never seen a slaughtered sheep. Ever. Oh, now John, when he writes, when he writes the apocalypse, all the readers of John, they have seen slaughtered sheep. They know instantly. Now, hey, look at us. We are third millennials. We don't know a thing about slaughtered sheep. So you know what? We need to find a sheep. We need to find a sheep and take a look. How is a sheep slaughtered? We can find some. We have a farm not very far from here. And in fact, we are so lucky in this one congregation, we have two experts on sheep. We have Kathy Kudell, who teaches in our agricultural department, and we have Joseph Grigg, who used to raise sheep, a retired professor of religion. I wanted to, right at this moment, bring, have them bring a sheep right out here onto the stage. But when they described to me what sheep do when they're nervous, I realized that is not a good plan to have in the middle of worship. And so we did the next best thing. With our media minister, Tibor Shelley, clutching the video cam, we went out to the farm. How do you slaughter a sheep? We went to the farm. Take a look at the screen. And we found out the answer to that. I'm standing here in the pasture of Joe Grigg, who's standing beside me, and uh, Kathy Cudell. Actually, Kathy, this is your sheep. Or you have how many sheep here? Uh, about six. You got six sheep here. And this is a ewe. Right. Yeah. She's about how old would she be? About a year and a half old. About a year and a half old. Thinking of the sacrificial system, uh, Kathy and Joe, the little lamb, a year or under, is brought to the tabernacle, and, well, let's face it, uh, Sheep are butchered in our country for uh, for mutton for mm -hmm. for consumption. Mm -hmm. Where how how is the animal butchered? Uh, with a knife. Okay. Right right here you can you can feel the you can feel the artery mm -hmm. if you push your fingers right down on the right ear spot. To ear, All right. Yeah. yeah. Ear to ear. And then yeah, ear to ear. Yeah, you cut. You can't cut it just shallow because. Other, otherwise, uh, you'll cut just the jugular, jugular, and uh, it'll stand there and bleed for a long, long time. I've seen people who've done that, mm. and it's uh, not not a very nice no. sight. Now, Joe, you were saying the moment the incision is made, the animal goes unconscious. That's right. As soon as the blood pressure drops, that blood pressure drops, mm -hmm. consciousness uh, fades away, right. and in, in a period of moments, minutes, the the animal will bleed to death. Moments. Yeah. yeah. Seconds. Moments. Seconds. Mm -hmm. yeah. Seconds. You have been a real sport. Bless your soul. Now look at her. She's just sitting here. You see, when you and I out. see a lamb, when you and I see sheep, what do we think? We think, we think cuddly, soft, docile, bad. But when John, when John and his readers, when they see sheep, the word, when they hear the word lamb, they're not thinking any of that. They instantly associate it with a single word, and that word is sacrifice. We, they do not think, they do not think of sheep as bah. They're thinking blood. Because that's what it's all about. I want you to take a look at something on the cover of your bulletin today. You get to keep it. I can't believe it. You get to take that home. A piece of original artwork commissioned for this very worship experience. I'm going to put it on the screen for those of you watching on television. Our friend Arnold Diaz. Remember the man who painted this picture of Jesus while we were in worship a few weeks ago when the series began? We went to Arnold and we said, Arnold, would you please take this, the, 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 
Levitical system of sacrifice. Put Jesus into it, will you? And now you have it on the cover of your bulletin. Oh, you won't throw that bulletin away because you'll be able to tack that picture up where you have your worship. You'll be able to have that picture where you can focus on Christ. Hang on to it. But let's go to the, Le the Levitical system for a moment, shall we? Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 4. In fact, we'll just do it right here on the screen. The instructions were clear. All of John's readers, they knew about this system. And speaking of ordinary sinners like you and me, if any one of the ordinary people among you sins unintentionally, this would be Leviticus 4.27, in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and he or she incurs guilt, what's going to happen? When the sin that you have committed is made known to you, you shall bring a female goat without blemish as your offering. For the sin that you have committed, you see, you shall lay your hand on the head of the sin offering and the sin offering shall be slaughtered at the place of the burnt offering right there where you are in worship. Thus, the priest shall make atonement on your behalf for the sin that you have committed and you shall be forgiven. Isn't that something? A female goat. Roy Gain has, has tongue in cheek described that as equal opportunity representation of Christ. In the book of Leviticus, I want to talk about Roy Gaines' book. Probably the most detailed and inspirational book you will ever read on the sacrificial system. It's called Altar Call. And I want to go to Roy's book. Roy teaches right here in our theological seminary. I want to go to Roy's book, Altar Call, and read these words with you right now. John the Baptist, you remember this, don't you? John the Baptist introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God, John 1.29. John could have referred to Christ as the Bull of God, or the Ram of God, or the Goat of God. But John chose the expression Lamb of God. Why, Roy asks. Well, for one thing, I Isaiah had prophesied that God's servant who would suffer for our sins would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, 7. Also, the foundational sacrifice of the Israelite sacrificial system was the regular burnt offering consisting of a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. All other sacrifices were performed in addition to this. By calling, Roy concludes, by calling Jesus the lamb, John implied that Jesus is the basic sacrifice as if to say... Here is the one who fulfills the role of the whole sacrificial system. You see, ladies and gentlemen, here in the apocalypse, we are not dealing with a Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow kind of lamb. We've got a grotesque, grotesque moment and scene because the lamb is still bleeding. This is the anomaly. The lamb is already dead. It is bleeding, thick blood crimson, coagulated on its fluffy white fleece, but the lamb is moving about as John watches. Wow. Verse 6, how does it go? Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. But hold it, hold it, hold it. The scene is not over. Hallelujah again. Because the dead lamb walking is moving. It is moving to the throne. Watch this, verse 7. He, the lamb that's dead, but alive, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. Now, hold on, stop, pause, pause. Remember, anyone who goes and takes up that scroll, the, the only one who can touch it is the newly anointed king. If that person picks up the scroll, that is the king we've been waiting for. And so while John stares, 
this brutalized, bloody, dead lamb walking steps up to the throne, reaches out, picks up the sealed coronation scroll, and the moment he does, Revelation 5 explodes into his jubilant coronation. Watch this, verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the twenty-four elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Remember in chapter 5 how the four creatures and the elders fell before the one sitting on the throne? Now it's deja vu all over again. In chapter 4, they're worshiping the Father. In chapter 5, they now worship the Son. And I'm telling you, if it's possible, their worship moves to an even higher note that is struck. Wow. And they sing. Oh my, they sing. Look at this, verse 9. They sing a new song. You are worthy. Oh, I, wish, I wish we had a CD. I wish we had a CD recorded there in heaven and we could put it on this earthly PA system and we could hear the music. They sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. You are worthy. You know why? Do you know why He's worthy? Because the slaughtered lamb is God's ransom for a lost human race. Now look, at six months ago, everybody's following the story. It's one of the sad things about the American news cycle. A tragedy can happen, and if it's one of those, like this one, open-ended tragedies, after a few days or weeks, the, the media lose, they, they lose their interest because another, another crisis happens, another reason to get all agitated again. And so you and I have not been thinking about 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart from Salt Lake City, Utah, who in June, you remember, apparently was abducted straight out of her, her bedroom. Isn't that right? Sick. And we've forgotten all about it. But the poor, the poor family, how could they forget? The news, America's forgotten, but not the family. No sign of her, by the way, all these months. Family utterly devastated and distraught. But two months ago, get this. Two months ago, the smart family began receiving email messages from someone who claimed to be young Elizabeth's kidnapper. They have now received 38 emails in all, trying to extort a ransom for the safe return of their daughter. Just this last week, the FBI, I tell you what, folks, you can run, but you can't hide. They found the server, the computer server, and they traced it. They traced it to Charleston, South Carolina. And in fact, when they broke into that home... The extortionist was at his keyboard composing another email demand. The extortionist, 18 years old. His name, William Holloway. Who probably knows absolutely nothing about Elizabeth's whereabouts, but who now faces 25 years for felony extortion. All because he demanded of Elizabeth's father three million dollars and I'll give her back to you. Revelation 5.9 is painfully clear. What was the ransom demand? Another father paid. And it was not three million. Three million is piddles in comparison. He broke. He broke. For this ransom demand, he broke the treasury of heaven.
what the Scripture is about. Take a look at this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, verse 19. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, oh no, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Not to be outdone, Paul, in speaking to the elders in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul describes the church of God that God obtained with the blood of His own Son. We read it just a moment ago, Revelation, verse 9 right here in Revelation 5. What is that text? Verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God. God paid the ransom. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, how many times have you and I bumped into this picture of God? But I wonder if the picture gets through anymore. I mean, do you understand this? They slit his throat. He bled to death on that cross. For the likes of you and me, you were bought by the blood of the Lamb. I was bought, bought, purchased, ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. You think about it, this university. This university was purchased, bought by the blood of the Lamb. This worshiping community, everybody here, bought. The whole world of lost, sorry sinners like you and me, bought by the blood of the Lamb. We don't understand it. I mean, the metaphor is agrarian and it is so far removed from us. And yet that's all John has. He can't, he can't write third millennial style. He's a first century writer. And so he says, I saw a lamb, dead and bleeding, but living and standing. And the lamb took the scroll, and the lamb became the king. You know, I, in, in my private worship, I try every day to read from the Gospel of, of St. Matthew. I, I go to the story of Calvary every day. Matthew chapter 27. If you'll read from verse 24 to verse 54, you can read the crucifixion every day of your worship. So I try. So this week, you know, I've been brooding on Revelation 5, just brooding over what this picture means for us. And then the next morning, I went and I, sure enough, I'm reading uh, Matthew 27 and it suddenly hit me that before the Lamb was ever coronated in heaven, he was already, he had already been coronated on earth. And in fact, they made sure that we would know that he was a king. I want you to read these words. This is Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him. Look at this. He's naked now, all right? They stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. And they're not through. They then put a reed as a scepter in his right hand. And they knelt before him and they mocked him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him. And they took the reed out of his hand and they struck him on the head. 
After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe, naked again, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The Lamb coronated in heaven has already been coronated on this earth. His cross, a throne. His crown, his crown, some thorns. He's already king. Pilate comes along in John, the Gospel of St. John, chapter 19, said, Hey, behold your king. You got a king. You got him now. The lamb has already been coronated on earth. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his king. Ladies and gentlemen, when we gather in worship, do you know what the truth is? We gather to confess before this King that for me, He wore that crown. For me, He climbed that throne. When we worship. Which is why I'm going to tell you. Now I'm going to say it on your behalf as well. Surely, every heart here beats with the longing. That as long as there is breath within us, as long as our hearts go on beating, as long as our lungs go on breathing, surely everybody here would say today, you know, I'm going to go every day of my life, I'm going to go to the foot of that throne and bow before my King. And that is why for the life of me, I mean, knowing that in worship we bow before the throne of the Lamb. And the throne is always, the throne is always the cross. That is why, you know, I just wonder to myself, what, what is this, what is that, what, what is it about us in this third millennial community? Why are we having a great debate trying to determine how much less we might get by with worshiping on this campus? I mean, if you could just, if you could lower from four to three, I, I would be much happier here. If you could take away some of those dorm worships and, and maybe give us double credit for having to come to chapel and worship the Lamb, I would understand. And you know, I'm a, yeah, you know, I am a faculty member here. It's the kids who need to worship, so I'm staying during chapel in my office. I don't need to worship. I have enough problem worshiping just one day a week. Can you imagine having to go to worship on Tuesdays? Let the kids go. They need it. Let's train up, train them up in the right way. You know, I find it an anomaly that in a Christian institution like this, we are debating about lowering the amount of times that we are asked to worship in order to get out of here. What is happening to us? Have we forgotten what worship is. What did we learn last week in Revelation 4? What does the word worship mean? It means worthyship. Five times now that word is used on the tongue of worshipers. Oh God, your worthyship. When we come into this chapel on Tuesdays, when we go over to the gym and somebody has a prayer, what is it? Just get the prayer over so we can have a secular program now? When we gather for Vespers here on Friday night, 10 o'clock in Meyer Hall, and there are just 23 of us there. You're not going to call this coming before the Lamb, are you? Why not? Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there for worship. 
What did you come for? Worship credit? I don't understand this. We act as if worship is something to pare down and eliminate so that we can be all that we've always dreamed we could be. I fear for an institution that reduces its opportunities to worship at the throne of the Lamb. And if they keep lowering the number, then there's something you and I can do. We can worship in private. Nobody can take that away from you. When you awaken at the beginning of a day, you know what? The Lamb upon the throne sees those pretty little eyelashes flutter. And He says, oh good, she's up. Great! He's getting up. Oh, no, He went back to sleep. Well, I'll wait. The great Lamb upon the throne, when you awaken in the morning, it's as if there were nobody else in the whole universe but you. And he's he's just waiting to say, hey, is he awake? Is he awake? Ah, quick. I'll bet we're going to have worship right now. I'll bet his very first thought is to bow at the throne before he stands at the mirror. You know what? Let him take the worships away. And nobody's trying to, by the way. Just a few. And we got to work this out as young adults. We got to find the values for ourselves. But ladies and gentlemen, we can worship alone. You know, it, it isn't much. I got the idea from Roger Morneau, but I'd love to have you do it. It's read Matthew 27, 24 through 54 every day of your life. There is no more powerful place on earth to go to than the foot of the cross and to look up and see the crown of your king and know. Know you are in the presence of royalty, the one who died and bought you by his blood. Do you understand that when you go to the cross, when I go to the cross and worship seven days a week, private worship, when we kneel down at the foot of the cross and you say, oh, Dwight, aren't you being a little too Christocentric? No, I'm quoting St. Paul. I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's nothing wrong with being Christocentric in the third millennium. It's going to take a Christocentric reformation. If this little community of faith that bans this earth is going to experience what we noted in a quotation last week, a revival of primitive godliness, if that revival is going to come to this community of faith, we are going to have to be a people in worship, not only once a week or twice or three times, but every single early morning. You know, when I come to the cross... And I bow down and I picture the throne and I see the crown and I know I'm in the presence of the king. Something happens at that moment. When I go to that throne and I worship him, the throne in my life immediately is vacated. Because I want to tell you something. I have, I have a struggle. I have a problem. Dwight has a problem. I struggle with this sin. I keep wanting... I keep wanting to usurp the throne. I keep crawling into that chair and I keep asserting that I have the right to experience leadership in my own life. I have a pride and ego problem. But when, see this is it, when I go to the other throne and I bow down and I say, oh no, you are worthy, ship. You are worthy. When I pray, you are worthy. Then the one on this throne said, hey, 
Did he just say that? Oh, yes, he said it. The one on this throne says, Good, I'm sitting on his throne today. There is no way Christ will ever sit on your throne unless you bow at his throne. His throne. Doesn't matter what they do. You can have private worship every day of your life and nobody can take it away from you. Public worship, well, I'm responsible for that. And I want to say in your hearing that I want to make certain that when the community of Andrews University gathers in worship in this building, that we will, we will be reminded we gather at the foot of His throne. And it's a cross. And if you could see our wooden platform here, you would see that we insisted when this platform was made that a cross be laid into the very woodwork so that every time somebody, anybody, stands in this pulpit, that person is standing at the foot of the cross. I promise you on behalf of our worship team that we will do everything in the power of Jesus to make certain that when you come here, you are bowing before His throne, not our stage. But you have to choose for your early mornings to go on your own to that place. Ladies and gentlemen, if ever there were a time for Andrews University and the Pioneer Memorial Church and the Seventh-day Adventist Church and Christianity in North America, if ever there were a time to go back to the foot of His throne, it's now. This is it. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain.